please be seated. Uh, The reading today is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 14. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet, and then turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. This is the gospel of Christ. Thank you very much, Grace, for reading that, and uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, I would say it's nice to be with you, but it's not. It's not nice to be in this way. It's nice to be with you. I think Jeff said at the beginning of the service, there's uh, a few of us, maybe 15 or 20 people here, uh, but I'm really sad that we're not able to be gathered together as normal. And um, as Jamie and the girls and I drove down here this morning, uh, we were saying, because we've just been away on holiday, last week was our first time back with the church family, and now, now we can't meet again, so there's a real sadness to that. And in particular, if, as you're listening to me, you're by yourself and not able to be joining with others, I'm really sorry for you. Uh, James said a few moments ago that the plan is that we're hoping next week to move to um, Quinn's Road, and the reason for that is uh, we're not sure how long lockdown two is going to last, and... um, we, we don't want to we want to make plans, but we don't know how long those plans are going to work for. Uh, and it makes sense for us to be able to set things up for the recording of services and leave it set up, rather than having to set it up every time like we do here at Shirley Intermediate. Uh, it means that we'll be able to invite a few people to join us, because remember the lockdown level two regulations mean that we can gather up to 100. We can't gather up to 100 at the Quinns Road Chapel because with social distancing and things, it's a smaller group that can be there. Uh, But it does mean we can keep our gear set up and therefore it's a lot easier to put the services on for as as long as we need to do this. So um, as James said, we'll we'll get emails and uh, communication out during the week. But um, it's sad this morning, isn't it? There's a sadness to it. Not you. It's great to be with you. But... There is a sadness. Well, let me pray, uh, and then we'll think about the Bible. We need to pray, because the um, the kid slot was so good by David and Mal. I'm not sure I have much to add to it. it that was really the, the kind of point. So I feel like all I can do is make it fuzzier and worse. But um, let's pray that that doesn't happen as we think about this, uh, this question and topic this morning. 
Uh, Heavenly Father, although there is a sadness at the way we're meeting this morning, we still thank you that we can do it. We thank you for your presence with us, no matter uh, who else we can't meet with physically. We thank you for your spirit that lives within us. And we thank you for the chance to sing praises to you, to bring before you the things on our hearts uh, in prayer, to hear your word and sit under it, to spend time together in this uh, different way. And we pray that now as we think about your word in particular, the scriptures, the Holy Bible, that you would encourage our hearts in the truth that they contain, the truth that they are. We pray that more and more we, we may see them for what they are, you speaking to us and live in the light of them. Please be with us as we think on it now, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today I'm uh, in some ways jumping into the series that James, been, James has been preaching on for a couple of weeks, the series on tough questions. And uh, James and I were talking about uh, this series uh, during the week and both slightly wor- wondering why we were doing this because there's some trickiness to this series. But uh, I'm really glad after on reflection that James has chosen this series because if you're listening today and you're not a Christian, and I hope there are some. If you're not a Christian and you're listening and taking part in this, you're very welcome to be here. But if you are not a Christian, then these tough questions are probably exactly the kind of thing you've got on your mind as you reflect about Christianity and what it is. These will be the questions that you wonder about and, uh, and may be put off by. But it's not just for non-Christians, for Christians too. If you're a Christian, these will be precisely the kind of questions your friends or family or co-workers or fellow students uh, ask you about when they find out you're a Christian. How could you believe this? What's this about? Uh, To be honest, it will also be the questions that sometimes we as Christians ask ourselves. All of us go through times when we weigh things up and when we're not sure and um, these will be some of the questions. So I hope that this is a helpful series for everyone. Now the big question that James has given me this morning is really about, uh, as you've heard, the Bible. It's this, this is the question, why is a book of old stories relevant to me today? Why is a book of old stories relevant to me today? took me a while to work out what that's saying, but you can see what it is, is it's about the Bible. And therefore, it's a totally fair question to ask about Christianity. Because in Christianity, the Bible plays a crucial part. Christians place huge significance on the Scriptures, on the Holy Word of God. And so questions on this topic, in this area, make total sense, and they're fair game. Isn't the Bible old and therefore outdated? Isn't the Bible full of inconsistencies and therefore unreliable? Isn't the Bible boring and full of difficult bits to understand? Why on earth would a book that is so out of fashion and so unreliable, how could it possibly be relevant to you and I as we live life in New Zealand in 2020? These are fair questions. Now the truth is... uh, it's such a big topic, I could say tons on it. We could be here for days. I'm going to limit myself to three things, and I'm barely going to argue the first two. I'm just putting that out there now. I'm just going to declare it, and you will believe me. No, I would de- de- declare it, and if you want to do further investigation, please do so. I'm just going to declare two things. It's the third one I'm going to spend most time on. So here is point one and point two on the question of why is a book of old stories relevant to me today? Firstly, because the Bible is more than just a storybook. It's God's word. And second, because it's reliable. There we go. Two down, one to go. Now, let me just speak very briefly on the first two points, but it will be brief. 
It's God's word. Christians have always believed that the Bible is not just uh, 66 different books written by different human authors at different times and in different places, although the Bible is that. Christians have always believed that as well as that, it's also one book written by one author, God. The Bible is God speaking to human beings, speaking to us. And so Christians see the Bible, the phrase we often use is, the ultimate authority in matters of faith and conduct. Now that's a a kind of technical phrase, but, but think about what it means. It's the ultimate authority for human beings in matters of faith and conduct. In other words, when you're wondering what you should believe, it's the Bible that tells you. It's the ultimate authority in matters of faith. When you're wondering what life's all about and how you should live, it's the Bible that tells us and is the last word on that because it's all matters of faith and conduct. So therefore, for the Christian, it should be for everyone, but for the Christian, the Bible is the ultimate authority in matters of faith and conduct. So before the voice of culture tells us what to do, we listen to the Scriptures. Before we obey government policy, we obey the scriptures. Before we listen to personal preference or experts with PhD and their advice, the Bible is number one. So God's word, the Bible is not just an old storybook, it's God's word. Secondly, it's reliable. A lot of people throw shade at the Bible, implying that you can't trust it because it's old and full of mistakes, or it's got inaccuracies and inconsistencies. Normally, when you ask people, when they've got, they raise concerns with you about that, what they mean is someone else has told them two or three things that they have some questions about. That in itself is a miracle. Do you know how big the Bible is? If you've got two or three concerns about its reliability, that's amazing. But usually what they've heard is that there's some uncertainty over a bit of translation or there's perhaps a, uh, a worry that there's a wrong historical detail or something like that. Now, I was trying to work out what's helpful for this morning looking at a question like this. We could have just spent a lot of time looking at all these questions and problems that people have with small parts of the Bible. But I don't want to do that. I will go on the record to say there is not a book in the, in the, in the whole existence of humanity in the whole history of the world that has had more investigation done on it, that has had more scrutiny leveled towards it by those aiming to discredit it than the Bible. It has been investigated. It continues to be investigated. And without going into all the details, I want to tell you it is reliable. Just take my word for it. It is reliable. There is huge reason to have confidence in the Scriptures as we have them. There's every reason for confidence in the reliability of the Bible. Above all other historical works we have, the Scriptures has has been put under that kind of microscope and it stands up to it. The great thing about the Bible is you don't have to take my word, I'm joking. You can check it all out for yourself. You can compare manuscripts. You can investigate the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can sift the evidence of the translations and transmission of the Scriptures. All good stuff to do. Might put you to sleep, but all good stuff to do. But you'll come up with the conclusion, it's reliable. So, part one and part two of the three-part answer to this question, done. Why is a book of old stories relevant to me today? Because it's God's word and because it's reliable. But I want to spend most of my time this morning on the third part of the answer. Because in the end, uh, the first part and the second part are not necessarily very compelling. The third one is. And the third one, if you get the third one right, the first two will follow. To illustrate the third point, I want to give you a quote 
uh, often um, attributed to the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon. I say often attributed because I don't think he said it. I, I haven't been able to find that he said it anywhere. So, so let's not credit Charles Spurgeon. I want to give you a great quote by J.B. No, I, I didn't say it. But it's such a good quote, you've got to use it. The story goes that Spurgeon was asked to defend the Bible from some accusations over its reliability. And he said, the word of God is like a lion. The Bible is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. It's a great quote by J.B. by Charles Spurgeon. The word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. That is true. Today, I don't want to give academic, intellectual answers for the veracity of the scriptures. I don't really want to get into giving an account of the historical compilation of the canon. I don't really want to start putting together manuscript evidences against one another and comparing and contrasting them. Although we could do all that, and we'd come to the conclusion, point two, it's reliable. We could do all that. I'd rather get into the Bible itself and let it speak for itself. I'd rather let the unleash the scriptures because they're true. And when we see them and sit under them, we know they're true. I, I never mind when people come at me with questions about the scriptures because I don't feel defensive. I don't feel like I need to defend the Bible. Let them get into it and read it for themselves because truth is powerful. And make no mistake about it, the Bible is God's word and it is truth. If I had someone tomorrow morning come into the chapel offices and they were genuinely ask, asking this question, so uh, what does an old book have, what, what, old stories, re, what's its relevance for me? Uh, I wouldn't be um, you know, sitting them down and taking out F.F. F. Bruce's other New Testament documents reliable. I wouldn't be getting online and going onto the Dead Sea Scrolls and seeing how, um, uh, how, how the extra veracity that gives all that kind of thing. I'd sit down and I'd ask them to give me four weeks. And I'd say, give me four weeks and you and I will read through a gospel, one of the four biographies of Jesus. And at the end of it, you ask me whether you think it's reliable. Note to self, people that don't want to spend four weeks with me, don't come into the offices tomorrow and ask me that question because that's what I would do. Each week we'd get together and we'd read part of it and we would be reading God's word and seeing the person of Jesus. What he said what he did. And not only is God's words the, the truth, Jesus is the truth. James reminded us of that last week when, he, when we were reminded of the words that Jesus said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And as you read through a gospel and you see Jesus and hear what he said and see what he did, you would be seeing truth, truth that makes sense of this world and existence. Truth about the human condition and the vagaries of life and truth put more powerfully and expressed more truly than anything else you will find in this world. When you read through the scriptures, it doesn't just describe, it teaches. And it doesn't just instruct, it inspires and it gives hope and it warns and it comforts. I wouldn't bombard someone who asks me about the Bible with facts and figures. I'd unleash the Bible and let them see for themselves the truth. When James gave me the uh, question for today, it didn't come with a reading. 
So normally when we're preaching, um, we're, we're preaching through a book of the Bible, I think James, uh, Jeff said this earlier, and um, I'll, be, I'll be preaching on a, a particular part of the Bible, and um, as I prepare my talk, that's what we'll be looking at. This one didn't come with a reading. And so I was asked to choose a reading. And the, the reading I chose that Grace read a few moments ago may have surprised some people because it's not a passage of the Bible teaching on the importance of the Bible. We could have done that. There's lots of parts of the Bible which talk about the importance of the Bible. We could have looked at 2 Timothy 3.16 where it says that all Scripture is God-breathed. And we could have seen that it's... We could have looked at the doctrine of the inspiration of the Scriptures. We could have looked at some of the other passages. I didn't. What I decided to do was just pick... I actually chose some of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew's Gospel. I chose it because it's Jesus speaking... And it's a part of the Bible we didn't look at, if you remember. We were doing a series in Matthew this year and we stopped during lockdown, the last lockdown. Uh, and we went after the, the Sermon on the Mount. So I thought, well, I'll just pick a part at random from the Sermon on the Mount and let people hear the words of Jesus and listen to the wisdom of Jesus and put it up against the wisdom of the world. And then you decide whether it's relevant. You decide whether you think it's got any bearing on your life in New Zealand in 2020. Let me point out a couple of bits as I looked at this random passage to show what I mean. Uh, I also added a couple of other bits from the rest of the Sermon on the Mount just to make a point. But um, I spoke a few weeks ago um, here at St. Stephen's of my unhappiness and discomfort at the cancel culture which has taken such a hold at the moment. I, I think it's awful. There seems to be almost a glee at the chance to see in others them fail and point it out. Uh, almost a glee at taking offence at something that someone else has done or said and then making that public, uh, expressing our offence and then demanding justice upon them, which almost inevitably means they're fired from a particular job or they're trolled online, uh, everyone jumps on them and they're isolated and um, alienated by themselves. That's what the world, that's the world's wisdom at the moment and how to make our world a better place and how to treat people who've done things wrong. Well, here's Jesus's. You heard Grace read it before, chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged and with the measure you are, it will be measured to you. When you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. See the two different philosophies going on there? Do you see the two different ways of thinking and living? The wisdom of our time leads to what? I would argue it leads to judgmentalism, smugness, and the isolation of people who've made mistakes. With, uh, they're, they're left to fend for themselves with no real hope of restoration. The teaching of Jesus leads to humility, to recognising your own fault before you jump on someone else. It leads to compassion and it leads to dealing with issues instead of just jumping on people. Which do you think is best? One of those approaches is brimming with self-righteousness and almost a perverse pleasure at the failure of other people. And it leads to those people who've done something wrong, being alone and feeling unloved and unsure and whether they can have other meaningful relationships again. 
the other way reflects a knowledge that we're all broken and seeks that we remember our own shortcomings as we seek to help others who've made mistakes. It doesn't seek to cancel but to care for brothers and sisters when we see them failing. Here's another one. Our society today is, I would describe it, is strident in asserting self-determination. We're all about the individual today. We demand that people treat us as we want to be treated, call us what we want to be called, uh, do to us how we think we should be dealt with and um, according to my desire, my identity, my everything. We don't just do it with ourselves, we, we raise our children this way now too so that they will know their rights, they will have self-esteem and self-love and, uh, and people must not offend them and, and we tell each other that the greatest love a person can have and look for is to love themselves because you can't be sure of love anywhere else so the greatest love you've got to have is yourself. Well, what does Jesus say? Jesus says in these verses, verse 12, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. We don't demand how other people will treat us. We seek to treat them as we would want to be treated. Do you see the difference? There's a big difference there. Earlier on, he doesn't say it in the Sermon on the Mount here, but earlier on, he, he says the greatest commandment is not loving yourself, it's loving God. And he says the second one is loving others. Loving yourself doesn't even make the top two for Jesus. Do you see the different ways of thinking? One of these philosophies, one of these ways of thinking and living leads to selfishness and narcissism. Ten years ago, you didn't hear the word narcissism. I hear it all the time now. Why? Because we've bred a selfish generation. Because we've told everyone that the most important things that we can give people is self-esteem, self-love, self-assertion. It's all about self. And as soon as it's all about self, life is about me getting what I think I should and being treated by others the way I think I should. It's profoundly selfish. I don't want... uh, When you raise your children, I don't want them uh, to... Uh, to have self-esteem. I want them to know they're loved by God. And if they put God first and others second, that's a way to live. The the other leads to living for yourself above everything else. It leads to a society of people looking out for number one and determined to find fault and offence in others. The other extends hospitality and generosity and kindness. Do, Do you see what I'm doing here? I don't have to defend the Bible. Look at this world and think about the so-called truths that it imparts. See the emptiness of its promises and the foolishness of its teachings. Then have a think about what Jesus says and what the scriptures teach. It's so different. What he says dazzles in a dark world as the truth. What he says shines brightly in the darkness as the wisdom of the one who made us and knows us and knows what life's about and knows how life should be lived. And it's so good. In everything, the truth of the Bible stands head and shoulders above the so-called wisdom of this age because it's not wisdom of this age. It's the foolishness of this world. I could go on and on on these things. This world tells a lie to people that you can be anything you want to be. It tells people if you, can, if you can conceive it and believe it, you can achieve it. That's true. Is that how it goes? I think that's how it goes. It rhymes and it's silly. 
But it's not just silly, it's dangerous because people buy this lie and they grow up thinking that if I, if I dream it, then I can, I can have it. I can, I can be anything I want to be. And they grow up and we get, what do we get? We get millions of midlife crises because people get to a point in their life when they suddenly realize they haven't achieved what they thought they were going to. And they are plunged into despair and disappointment and sadness. And they think, well, this is, my life is not what I thought it would be. I haven't got the life I wanted. I didn't catch the dream I chased. The relationship I thought I was going to have, I don't have. The job I thought was going to fulfill me is depressing. My, sp- my prospects are limited and they think something's wrong with them and they despair and it's awful. The Bible is honest. It says you can't be anything you want to be. It says there's something wrong with you. It says you're not what you were meant to be. You're great. You were made in the image of God. What a wonderful uh, treasure is ours to be made in the image of God. But it says there's something wrong with us. We're not what we could have been because we've been plagued by sin. We've got this brokenness to us. And, And this world, it's not just us, this world is not as it should be because sin corrupted this world too. And so living life in this world will part and parcel include frustration and hurt and suffering. But it holds out what, how you can make the most of this world by having the right one relationship you were made for with your creator, your father God. And it holds out hope for the life to come, which is the life that delivers all it promises. Do you see the difference? One sets people up for spectacular failure. One is realistic. Our world says, follow your heart, and then it's surprised when following your heart leads to broken marriages and unrealized desires and disappointment and loneliness. And it says, chase your desires because in chasing your desires, you'll you'll find fulfillment in them and peace in them. And then it doesn't. It leads to brokenness because people end up realizing that nothing does fulfill them in this life, not money or success or pleasure, none of it. The scriptures say the opposite. Beware your heart. But be aware that your heart's like the rest of you. It can make good decisions and bad decisions. Beware your heart. And it teaches that nothing in this life will fulfill us or give us peace because everything in this world ultimately spoils, fades, breaks, or is lost. But it gives us more than that. It doesn't just tell us the truth of the situation. It gives us hope because it says the one thing you will find it in is God himself, the relationship you were made for. This world searches everywhere for love, and the Bible gives us Jesus where we see what real love is. You see how loved you are by the God who's given you his son to make you his child. Have a look at the world. I'm not going to talk to you and argue about manuscripts and inconsistency. Look at, let the Bible speak for itself. Put it against the wisdom of the world and you tell me. Do you honestly think the world has the answers? Do you think we've made it with all our wisdom? And Lots of people say education is the silver bullet for everything. We're the most educated age in the history of the world. Do you think we're the best age? Okay, I'll let you off the hook. You don't even have to say we've made it. Do you think we're making progress? Do you look around this world and think, well, at least we're getting better? Because I look at the world at the moment with its wisdom and its ways and think it's getting worse. Are people getting better? Are people getting happier? People sneezing more loudly? Yes, James Ballinger. Do you see anything that gives optimism for the future here? Read the scriptures and see truth. Don't just see truth. Believe it and live in the light of it. It'll show you Jesus 
and your wonderful Saviour. And it does lead to better, happier lives because it's the way we're supposed to live. Not lives without problems, but lives that know the truth and live in the light of it. And so when it comes to the question, why is a book of old stories relevant to me today? I don't feel the need to defend the Bible. Just unleash it. Now, I'm not trying to pretend there's not some hard stuff in the Scriptures. Hard stuff to understand, hard stuff to accept. That's why I wouldn't just say, uh, go away and read that for four weeks. I'd meet with them for four weeks. Read it. If if you're reading it for the first time, read it with someone who knows it a little bit more and can help explain it and, and work things through. But you genuinely look at it for yourself and then you tell me if it's truth. If it's, if it's relevant for your life. I'll finish with this. There's a, a saying in Christian ministry uh, circles which has um, become popular in recent years. I hate it. Uh, it's that when you're involved in Christian ministry, you've got to make the Bible relevant for people. Can you see the problem in that statement? You've got to make the Bible relevant for people. That's nonsense. I don't have to make the Bible relevant. JB doesn't have to make the Bible. It is relevant. It's God's word and it's reliable. What we want to do is show people its relevance because people have already made up their mind with it. They don't actually ask that question with genuine... Sometimes they do, and I love it when they do, but mostly they're just trying to point, put holes in it because they've already made up their mind it's irrelevant. It is relevant. I don't need to defend the Scriptures. I just need to unleash them and let them roar because they point to Jesus, the one who is the truth, the one who is our Saviour. So if you have a question about the relevance of the Bible... Get into the Bible and see Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we live in a world which I just think is plunged in darkness. We speak as if we're wise. We act as if we know. And yet this world is a mess. I thank you that you haven't left us alone in the darkness. You've given us your word. Your word in writing the Bible and your word with a a kind of capital W, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for them. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for being with us. And I pray that more and more people may turn to your word, find the truth in it, and live in the light of it. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.